0: In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders in what is essentially a small uh, ministerial conference. And this is sometimes an overlooked uh, section of Acts. We, we might read it but not understand the historic context. So I'll try to refresh our memories and, and uh, for those of us who are not as familiar with it, explain the historic context uh, of this section In Acts chapter 20. Now Paul's longest known ministry, his longest known continuous ministry in one location was in the large Roman metropolis, the large Roman city of Ephesus. And Acts chapter 20 verse 31 notes that it was a approximately three year ministry and it began around AD 53. Went from about AD 53 to about AD 56. What do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was a major, major metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. A major trade city located between Asia, or located in Asia between the Croesus Mountains and the Aegean Sea. And it was situated on trade routes in the Roman Empire. Very important trade routes. Uh, many historians estimate that its first century population was well over 300,000. And uh, we've seen estimates that it may have approached a half million. So that made it one of the largest, most affluent, most prosperous, most influential cities in the Roman Empire. And Paul stayed there almost three years. And helped establish the church in Ephesus, which is also, as you know from Revelation, uh, the type of the first era of the seven eras of God's church. So, as was his custom, Paul began his ministry in the Jewish synagogue. Let's turn to Acts chapter nineteen. Acts chapter nineteen and begin to set the stage. As was Paul's custom, Acts chapter 19, he began his ministry in the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus. Acts 19 verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. For three months in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. But Paul's time preaching from the Jewish synagogue was going to be short. It was going to be short. Persecution from the Jewish leadership soon forced him to relocate. And so he relocated to a public lecture hall. He relocated to a, a public lecture hall, a civic place. Now this was a very productive time in Paul's ministry. Many, many were converted. Many were called and many were converted during this time. This is the time when Paul wrote the epistles of uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He wrote the epistles of 1st and 2nd Corinthians during this time. And he was addressing problems in the Corinthian church, which was about 250 miles to the uh, west across the, uh, the Aegean Sea in Greece. Now, for those of you who were students at Ambassador College, took the, uh, you know, the Epistles of Paul class, or for those of you who have been able to take the Living University uh, Epistles of Paul class or other classes, then you've learned about this. And you understand that this Ephesian ministry was part of the historic time that historians will, or theologians will call Paul's third missionary journey. And we'll sometimes refer to it as his, as the third apostolic journey. The, but the third missionary journey or third apostolic journey, same uh, same time. And that period is generally agreed to be from around AD 53 to about AD 57, to the winter of AD 57. So the third missionary journey lasts a little longer than Paul's time in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for about three years, 53 to 56, but the third apostolic journey goes from about 53 to the winter of 57. So what happened after his time in Ephesus? And why is that important for us? And what can we learn from a passage in Acts chapter 20? Well, very much, very much. Let's continue to set the stage, the historic setting. It's helpful for us to understand the historic setting so that we can understand better what Paul's instructions uh, mean to us today that he gave back then 2,000 years ago. The historic setting will help us understand the, the meaning and the importance of the instructions that we'll go through today in the sermon. So after about three years, as I already mentioned, Paul left Ephesus and traveled to Macedonia and then to Greece. So he traveled west, and while in Greece, in Corinth, in the fall of AD 57 he wrote the epistle to the Romans. So just trying to set the the story here, uh, explain and sort of help us understand how busy Paul was, what he was writing, what was on his mind during this time. And so from Greece, from Corinth, he wrote the epistle to the, the letter to the Romans. And then on his way back to Jerusalem, toward the end of this three plus years, three and a half year, third missionary journey, he's going to travel by Ephesus, but he's not going to stop in Ephesus. He has to travel by Ephesus, or he doesn't have to, but he chooses to travel by Ephesus heading east back toward Jerusalem. And it's from a town known as Miletus, M-I-L-E-T-U-S, south of Ephesus, where Paul administered for about three years, just a few months prior that he summons the ministry to him. He summons the Ephesian ministry to come down to Miletus, and he wants to give them instruction, very important instruction, and a very important time, a very important setting, historically, uh, prophetically, and parallels for us today. And so Paul's instructions are found in the book of Acts chapter 20. So let's turn over a page to Acts chapter 20. These are Paul's final recorded instructions to the Ephesian ministry. Very important. We're going to read Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. And we're going to read it fairly quickly. Acts chapter 20 verse 17. And we'll notice that there are seven things that Paul emphasizes. Seven lessons. And that's the title of my sermon today. Well, it's, uh, it, it leads me to the title, title of my sermon. Uh, the title of the sermon is Paul's Final Instruction to the Ephesian Elders. Paul's Final Instruction to the Ephesian Elders. He's going to give them seven keys, or we'll extract seven keys from these Final instructions found in Acts chapter 20. Let's begin in verse 17. I won't give you the keys yet. We're going to read a lengthy passage and then we'll go back and we'll extract those seven keys. Acts 20 verse 17. From Miletus, small city to the south of Ephesus, where he administered all that time, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And we already saw that he was driven from the synagogue after three months of being in the synagogue. And how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly from house to house. We see he was very active uh, he was a visiting minister. He went from house to house. He visited the the members. And he taught. Uh, verse 21, testifying to Jews and Greeks. So he taught to Jews and to Gentiles. Repentance toward God and faith toward our our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. And we'll talk about that more later. But the Holy Spirit... And many prophets were um, telling him and guiding him. Uh, some of the prophets were trying to discourage him, dissuade him. Uh, some of the elders were trying to dissuade him. But he was compelled to go to Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll read about that, and we'll, we'll uh, talk about the rest of the story as well. <clears throat> but he, in verse 22, says he's now bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that, Chains and tribulations await me there. But none of these things move me, nor do I count um nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace uh, of God. So Paul is is very compelled, and he's committed and convicted. <clears throat> Verse twenty five. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day. So, this is this is his message to the Ephesian elders. <clears throat> now, brethren, as you understand, of course, um, they got together, and Paul and the Ephesian ministry visited, and I'm sure much more was said than is what than is what is recorded right here in these few verses. But these are the highlights. This is what God inspired. To be recorded for us today. So how many hours did they spend together? Was it a day? Uh, I'm not sure. History doesn't seem to indicate. But it wasn't just a five minute or ten minute conversation. And so he talks about being innocent of the blood of all men in verse 26. Verse 27. He says he's not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 26. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Continuing on, verse 31, he says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I, am comman- I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all, these, all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I won't read the rest of the passage. But this is the, the, the gist of what he uh, went over with the Ephesian elders. And then toward the end of this uh, chapter, it says in verse 37 that they wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he had spoke that they would sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. <clears throat> now buried in this passage are seven lessons that I'd like to discuss today. And we should <clears throat> examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves before Passover, but we should examine ourselves throughout the year. Uh, how much we are convicted how much we uh, believe and practice and take to heart these core lessons, these core uh, keys that Paul reviewed with the Ephesian elders. They were very, very important then and they're very important now. Here are the seven keys. I'll give you the seven uh, lessons and then we'll go through and talk about each of them. The first is found in Acts chapter 20 and verse 25. Acts 20 verse 25. What does Paul write there? And indeed now I know that, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. Paul preached the kingdom of God. We talk about the kingdom of God in the church of God, don't we? How many telecasts, how many articles, how many sermons do we talk about the kingdom of God? And it shouldn't surprise us that this is one of the most important keys and it's one of the first lessons that we can extract from Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders. Let's never take for granted how critical that truth is. We'll talk about it a little bit. But just because we talk about it a lot does not mean that it's not fundamental and critical. Number two. Dr. Meredith has been mentioning this a lot uh, in the last few years. And it's key number two that you find in Paul's uh, exhortation to the elders. and That's found in verse 27, where Paul says that he is not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Uh, the church of God teaches the whole counsel of God. We don't cherry pick. We don't take verses out of context. We teach the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, and New. And there's no contradiction in Scripture. And we teach the whole counsel of God. And Paul taught the whole counsel of God. Dr. Meredith has exhorted us to teach the whole counsel of God. Number three. And this also, Dr. Meredith has been encouraging us about a lot the last few years. Number three is found in verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 28. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer, overseers to shepherd the church of God. Notice this, which he purchased with his own blood. The fact that the church and we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We'll expand on that later in the sermon. But he reminded them of that. Number four. Key number four is found in verse 29, where he warns them that after his departure, savage wolves would come, not sparing the flock, that they would bring in false teaching. So principle number four would be against heresy or against false doctrine. Key number five that we'll discuss today, which Paul uh, went over with the elders, was to be diligent in their Bible study. You can find that in verse 32. Verse 32. And number six, key number six, is found in verse 35. That is more blessed to give than to receive. Charity. Paul discusses the way of give with the Ephesian elders. And finally, verse uh, point number seven, principle number seven or lesson number seven, uh, you really gather this more from what occurred than what Paul said, but it's very, very important, and to me it's a fitting seventh point, and that's found in verse 36 and 37, that after his exhortation, they wept freely, they fell upon his neck, and they kissed him, they sorrowed. Uh, the lesson we can extract, the seventh lesson, is that there was real spiritual love among Paul and the elders, and among the church. Real spiritual love. Brotherly love. Let's go through these seven points briefly. And then if we have time, we'll uh, talk more about what happened to Paul uh, after this this small ministerial conference uh, in Miletus about 2,000 years ago. First, the kingdom of God. Now, we're very familiar uh, with these scriptures, so I won't spend as much time. As a matter of fact, I won't turn there, but... What does Matthew 24 verse 14 say? Now it's, it tells us that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world. As a witness to all the nations. Right up until the end. And we must do our part to fulfill the commission that God has given to his church to preach the gospel to all the world. Let's turn to John chapter 18, John chapter 18 and verse 36. So key number one or lesson number one is the kingdom of God to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, some will say that the kingdom of God is in our heart. And as a matter of fact, that's a doctrine uh, among many churches. And there are some large churches that teach that the kingdom is the church. And there are others who teach the kingdom is sort of, you know, in your heart. But that's not the case. The kingdom of God is a real government. Christ will return and establish it, as we know. And what does John 18, verse uh, 36 tell us? How does it help us to understand that point? And I'm not going to prove this thoroughly. I think we all understand this. John 18, verse 36. Uh, Let's begin in verse 35. Pilate answered, um and said, am I a Jew? So <clears throat> Jesus is in Pilate's court, and Pilate says, am I a Jew, your own nation? And uh, the chief priests have, declared, uh, have delivered you to me. What, what have you done? And then Jesus responds to Pilate, and he says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is not yet established in this world. If it were established back then, then, uh, you know, Jesus says that his servants would fight. When Paul reminded the Ephesian elders about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he was just reminding them of the pattern and the instruction set by our Lord, set by Jesus Christ, uh, early on in his ministry. And that's the example the church continues to follow. Let's, Let's take a quick look at an example from Christ's early ministry. Let's Look in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verse 7, Luke chapter 9, verse 7. You know, there's that famous bumper sticker, that question, what would Jesus do? Here's what Jesus would do. Here's what Jesus, here's what Jesus did. Here's what we do. So it's appropriately key number one in my sermon. And I think appropriately, one of the first things Paul emphasized to the elders to remind them to teach and instruct and encourage the church. Luke 9, verse 7. So Herod is going to be uh, searching for uh, Jesus here. Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, verse 7, because it was said by uh, some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets uh, had risen again. And Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I have heard such things? And he sought to see him. <clears throat> and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Now we're in verse 10. And, um, <clears throat> and he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place, belonging to the city of Bethsaida. And when the multitudes knew it, they uh, followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about what? The kingdom of God. And he healed those who had need of healing. Very, very early, from very early in Jesus' ministry, what did he teach? What did he do? He taught the kingdom of God. Let's move on to point number two. Point number two. Paul encouraged the elders to heed and study the whole counsel of God that's found in Acts 20 verse 27. The world today, as you know, as we all understand, is moving farther away from even believing there's a God. And those who profess to be Christian, they don't take God's word as, you know, seriously or as seriously as they should. And God prophesied through the prophets, and we'll specifically turn back to the, to the book of Hosea, uh, about such a time. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter four. We've, we've used this um, prophecy many times as a warning that we need to not become dull of hearing, and also as a warning that Israel needs to not become dull of hearing. But Israel has become dull of hearing. <clears throat> and so what is the consequence uh, of modern Israel uh, walking away, turning away from the knowledge of God? What is the consequence? Well, we find uh, one of many prophecies uh, which answers that question in Hosea chapter 4. Very famous uh, scripture, Hosea 4 verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now this is a prophecy... Brethren, that did not only uh, have meaning and did not only apply anciently, but applies regarding modern Israel. And you can just you can Google this on the Tomorrow's World or the LCG.org website, and you'll see how we've used uh, this uh, the Scripture many times to make that point. God does not want us to be destroyed for lack of knowledge. Physical Israel rejected. Scripture, in generally speaking, rejected God and will be destroyed for lack of knowledge. God will save some out of the tribulation. God does not want us to be destroyed for lack of knowledge. He wants us to be zealous and enthusiastic about studying and understanding the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> A good article from Dr. Meredith March, April, 2014, why don't most most churches preach the truth? And it's very relevant to, to this point. Because here we have professing Christian churches that claim that they're Christian, and Dr. Meredith is addressing this specific, this very point. Why don't they preach the truth? Why don't they really care and fear what Scripture says? And what are the consequences? But brethren, there's a question for us as well. Do we coast a little bit? Do we coast a little bit? You know, do we study our notes? Do we read the LCN? Do we read the tomorrow's world? Do we pay attention during the sermon? You know, how many times have you heard point number one, the gospel of the kingdom of God? You know, depending on how long you've been in church, many times. But let's never take it for granted. Billions don't understand that. And thousands who used to have fallen away. Dr. Meredith writes, March, April 2014, why don't most churches preach the truth? Millions of Americans, Canadians, and Britons attend church and recite standard prayers, sing songs, clap their hands, and hope they are learning something worthwhile. But they are not actually learning to understand the inspired word of God. They are not being taught the details of why they were actually born the ultimate purpose of life and how to attain that purpose. They are not being told of the dozens of specific prophecies now beginning to occur, which will greatly affect their very lives over the next decade or two. Notice this. They are not being taught the whole counsel of God as the Apostle Paul taught in Acts 20, verse 27, end of quote. You know, there are many who have left the truth gone back into Protestantism or whatever other false Christianity and they feel good about themselves, but they're not being taught the whole counsel of God. Are we guarding ourselves against spiritual apathy? Are we zealous to study God's word? When we hear messages, for example, in the sermonette about what, you know, who is our Lord and how do we make decisions throughout the day? Do we meditate on that do we do we take some notes and review those notes maybe Saturday evening, Sabbath evening or maybe Sunday afternoon or you know during the course of the coming week? Again, do we read the articles that come out? How many articles have we written on the kingdom of God? a lot, but that's our hope that's our raison d'etre, right? I never pronounce it properly. Raison d'etre, whatever. It's our reason for being. It's the reason for the church. Number three, the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. Not only before Passover, brethren, but all throughout the year, we must deeply appreciate the importance of Christ's sacrifice for us individually, and Christ's sacrifice for all of the world. What is that famous scripture, for God so loved the world, right? We must appreciate that. Let's turn, though, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Let's appreciate that. Let's understand that. Let's meditate on that. Let's think about that. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Actually, beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, once not a special people, once not God's people. That refers to me before conversion. That referred to you before conversion. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at the time you were without Christ, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. Sin cuts us off from God. You can be a fairly uh, pure-blooded Jew, but if you've sinned, the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to have uh, that relationship with God, to be brought near to God is through the blood of Christ. Do we appreciate that? Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 8. And Paul reminded the elders of this. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very clear. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. How much do we appreciate this? Now, the Protestant world appreciates it to a point, don't they? They talk about it a lot. <clears throat> but they typically miss the other side of the same coin, which is that the law applies. Repentance is required. A change of life is required. That is, it says in Matthew 4, verse 4, we must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we can't just say, well, Christ died for our sins, and we can then go on and sin some more. We must live by every word from the mouth of God. And some of the words included in Scripture we're familiar with. For example, 1 John 5, verse 3. 1 John 5, verse 3, which tells us that this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So it's both sides of the coin. Are we tremendously thankful for the sacrifice of Christ? But do we understand the tremendously binding nature of God's law and how vital repentance and a change in our way of life is? It's both sides of the same coin. James one verse twenty two is very familiar to us. You can turn there if you'd like. But James one verse twenty two tells us to not be doers, uh, to, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have to do God's word. We have to keep God's law. We have to make changes in our life when our life is not aligning with God's law. So do we love and appreciate and deeply? Are we deeply thankful for the sacrifice of Christ, but do we also love God's law? Are we thankful for God's law? Are we deeply repentant when we need to repent? Again, from Dr. Meredith, he wrote in his editorial, uh, September, October 2006, the title of the editorial was, What Does Christ's Death Mean to You? And what did he say here? He wrote the following. And much more than most of us probably do, we should we should constantly think about and appreciate the sacrifice Jesus made in literally giving his blood as payment for our sins. For again and again, we find the New Testament writers focusing on this vital realization. The Apostle Paul wrote, quote, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, verse 7. How much do we appreciate that sacrifice? How much do we appreciate the pain that Christ went through? The scourging that he went through. Uh, just today at church there were a couple a few anointings that, uh, that, uh, that, that our anointing elder had to do, and and when we anoint someone, uh, we ask God to remember, which God remembers, but we ask him to remember uh, the beating and the scourging that Christ suffered willingly. And then of course Christ shed blood in his death so that our sins can be forgiven. And God hears that prayer. And that is how we can approach God's throne and that's why we can ask to be healed in faith because of that sacrifice. Do we appreciate it? I'll just, before I move on to point number four, I'll just say that, uh, I I think Dr. Meredith has done a, a tremendous job in reminding us of the importance of Christ's sacrifice. And there, there were some uh, who attacked the church over the course of the years and decades past that would say that, you know, we taught um, uh, you know, um, salvation by works. I, I grew up in God's church and I don't, that's not what I learned. That's a false attack and a lie. And at best, it's an ignorant attack. And we've always taught law. And grace, both. We've always taught it. And Dr. Meredith has helped us to uh, remind ourselves we have to emphasize that a little more, not fall into either ditch. Let's turn to, uh, let's go to point number four. heresy Against heresy and against false doctrine. That was found in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Brethren, doctrine matters. The truth matters. The traditions of the church matter. Most important is God's law. But Scripture matters. Doctrine matters. It doesn't just matter for the ministry, it matters for all of us. If your Lord is Jesus Christ, then his law and his word matters, and what he teaches matter. We are not uh, permitted to go off the reservation. Doctrine matters. Second Timothy chapter 3. Now, there was a reason that Paul uh, mentioned this to the Ephesians. And if I can speed up, we might uh, get to the rest of that story. But there was a reason. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But perilous times were going to come upon the Ephesian church. And I think God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to understand that. And he encouraged the elders. But, brethren, it matters now for us today as well. Doctrine matters. Resisting heresy, resisting false doctrine matters. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, What does this say? I'm not going to add to, I'm not going to elaborate on, just what does this scripture say? But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, Slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. I won't elaborate. What does the scripture say? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How does he devour? Does he devour as a physical lion? Or does he devour through false doctrine, heresy, sin, pride, the works of the flesh? Verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brethren in the world. One more scripture, Hebrews. Doctrine matters, brethren. Now, I'm not trying to imply that we will understand individually, each of us will understand every single doctrine, every single prophecy, every single nuance of prophecy. But what I am saying is that we need to be very, very um, careful to study our Bibles, study the church literature, to pray and study every day, and to take doctrine seriously. And if what we think we might be believing uh, differs largely from what the church uh, has established, then we need to be very careful, seek counsel from uh, the ministry, and be very humble about it. Hebrews thirteen. Hebrews thirteen. Obey those verse seventeen. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey those who rule over you. Who is it talking about? It's talking about the the ministry. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. You know, Dr. Meredith has to give account. Mr. Weston, Mr. Ames, Dr. Winnell, uh, they have to give account. I have to give account for the counsel that I give. We have to give account for how we teach, what we teach. So, verse 17, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Doctrine matters. Point number five, be diligent in our Bible study. That's found in verse 32. Verse 32, I won't turn there, but Psalm 119, verse 160 tells us that the entirety of God's word is truth. We need to be diligent in our our Bible study. That's point number five that Paul made. And Psalm 119, verse 160 tells us that all of God's word is truth and it stands forever. Uh, The Bible is God's instruction book to mankind. But let's talk briefly about the Bible, God's word, that we, we've been encouraged to study. It's, it's important, right? We've been encouraged to study this book. If you're encouraged to study a book, let's say they, 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 they tell you in school, I want you to study Moby Dick. You're in an English class, study the book Moby Dick. Long book. Uh, he took much too long to make his, uh, his point, I believe, but I've read it many times, written papers on it. Uh, could have made the point, you know, much more succinctly. But okay, so we're going to study Moby Dick. So if you're going to study the the book, you, you want to make sure you have the right copy of the book. You study the wrong version of Moby Dick, you're going to fail the test. We can be confident that the Bible has been preserved. Now, how is it we can be confident in that? Well, first we know that God doesn't lie. God does not lie. What does it say in Numbers 23, 19? We won't turn there, but Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie First Samuel 15:29 we won't turn there but first Samuel 1529 jot these down God's nature is not to lie. we already read Psalm 119 verse 160 or referenced it that the entirety of God's word is truth. what do we know from John 10 verse 35 John 10 verse 35. What do we know from John 17, 17? These might be worth jotting down. John 17, 17. God's Word is truth. Titus 1, 2. Hebrews 6, 18. Many scriptures, many scriptures that show us that God's nature is a nature of, of truth. He doesn't, He does not lie. He does not change. And what has been recorded for us is God's instruction and it has has been preserved. The Old Testament was about a thousand years in compilation, in writing. And scholars understand that it has been preserved with incredible accuracy. I encourage you to go to our websites and Google, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible read Dr. Winnell's booklet. We can trust God's Word, because we can trust God, and we can trust the Bible, because there, it, it stands on God's Word, and we know that God cannot lie, and it has been preserved. Do you know that the Apostles began to canonize, this is review for us, began to canonize the New Testament at the end of the Apostolic Era? Do we, do we understand how important that is? That the very Apostles, ending with you know, with John. They were canonizing the New Testament during the the end of the apostolic era. That the Old Testament was already known and set by then. <clears throat> some facts. Some additional facts. The oldest, I find this interesting, I find it encouraging. The oldest surviving list of the canonical scriptures of the Old Testament, now this is the oldest surviving list of the canonical scriptures of the Old Testament Uh, It's from about 170 A.D. And this was a list recorded by Melito, Melito of Sardis. And Melito of Sardis, we don't know a lot about him, but he, we know some, and he was a friend of Polycrates. And guess where, guess where Polycrates uh, lived? Ephesus. And Polycrates was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. You know, sort of one of the, uh, Products, the fruits of Paul's labor and John's labor. Just interesting historic point. <clears throat> what about archaeological evidence? Now, we've talked about some of these archaeological findings before. I'll mention a few of them very quickly. But we have archaeological evidence that supports the fact that what is recorded in scripture was historically true. Uh, many of you have heard of the prism of Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Easy to spell, right? S-E-N-N. A C H E R I B. I'll give you four historic artifacts that were that were found, um, and there are more. But the Prism of Sennacherib was discovered in Nineveh in 1830, and it's now housed in the British Museum. And it describes Sennacherib's conquest of the 46 Judean cities that he his army conquered during Hezekiah's time. And there were scholars and academics before it was found that questioned uh, the Bible account of what happened. But here, sure enough, we find this, this clay prism, and it talks about what the Bible uh, has kept preserved for all those years, about Sennacherib's, Sennacherib's conquest of those Judean cities. The Israel Stela. The Israel Stela. Another archaeological find. Uh, this is a stone slab that was found in Egypt, in Thebes in 1896 I'm moving forward chronologically so Sennacherib's prison was found in 1830 uh, this was found in 1896 uh, at the time of its finding it was the oldest record of ancient Israel outside the bible and it records one of pharaoh one of the pharaoh's uh, uh, battles conquests um, in, in in Israel and Syria that occurred in the 13th century BC uh third archaeological Find the Tel Dan Stela, T-E-L-D-A-N-S-T-E-L-E. You've, we've discussed this before, but just is a quick review. Uh, this was found in, in uh, fragments between 1993 and 1994, and it discusses uh, King David and the House of David. And there was a time when people said King David was a myth. One of the very interesting finds um, that I, uh, I uh, personally was very interested in uh, was it was discovered in 2015. And this is the clay seal of Hezekiah, the clay seal of Hezekiah. And it was found near Old Jerusalem outside uh, the city walls in 2015. And this clay seal is small. It's about 2,700 years old. And it bears the inscription, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. And there are more findings. Brethren, Scripture is the inspired word of God. Your Bible has been preserved accurately. When Paul encouraged the Ephesian elders to study their Bible, when we are encouraged to study our Bible, we are studying God's mind in print, and we're studying a book that God preserved accurately for us, for our instruction, for our edification. Let's turn to Second Timothy. Verse 3, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, a famous memory verse that our youth will memorize. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It really should be, as you know, all scripture is God-breathed. It wasn't just inspired. I can be inspired to paint a painting of a lake and a tree and a bird, but I guarantee you if I paint that painting, you'll probably think it's a puddle of mud and a bush and a dog sitting in the tree. It won't look like a lake and a tree and a bird. Now that's that's inspiration of Mistress Aselka. That's not what we're talking about about here in 2 Timothy. Theophanousis. God breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. And we've already talked about doctrine, haven't we? We've already talked about reproof. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's take our Bible study seriously. Let's turn to one more scripture before we move on. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 19. It's a blessing. It should be a joy to study God's word. Ephesians 2 verse 19. No matter how many times we've read through the Gospels or Genesis or the Psalms or the Proverbs. It's a blessing. It's God's mind imprint. Ephesians 2, verse 19. And something, um, it does something for us too, doesn't it? Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. We kind of discussed that concept earlier. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, this refers to us, God's church, the ecclesia, the called out. And we've been built upon something, haven't we, brethren? We've been built upon something. We've been built upon a foundation. And with no disrespect to any ministers around today, but we've been built upon a foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And we maintain those teachings. And we are the bastion of truth, God's church. And that's why we take doctrine seriously. And that's why we should be thankful for the preservation of Scripture. Brethren, you can trust your Bible. Point number six it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, a whole way of life. You know, do we recall how much Mr. Armstrong talked about the give way? You know, I'm younger than some, uh, but I remember, you know, Mr. Armstrong, from the best that I can recall and talking to others, uh, like any of us, he would go through certain um, certain points or topics would be important to him at different times uh, through the course of his ministry. And uh, I grew up learning about the two trees, a lot. But I also grew up learning about the way of give, a lot. It's very important. Do we practice the way of give? Let's turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 22. Is the give way part of our life? Is it really? Proverbs chapter 22. Now Paul reminded them of Jesus Christ's words. In Acts chapter 20, he reminded them of Jesus' words about it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's turn to some other scriptures that make the same point. Proverbs 22 verse 9. He who has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Are you generous? Am I generous? Proverbs 28, Proverbs 28, verse 27. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. Proverbs 28, verse 27. I think that I I I believe, I, I do believe that one of the reasons that the United States and Britain were blessed. You know, the main reason was God delivered on the promise that He made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants that the birthright blessing would would occur and so forth. But the United States and Britain were, were generous. We we've been generous nations, generous people, not taking away from from other nations, but we have been generous, especially historically. Uh, maybe maybe not as much anymore. I, I haven't checked the stats lately, but. If we're generous, God will bless us. If we're generous, we will not lack. Now, we have to keep all of God's law. You can't, you can't just be generous and profane the Sabbath and, uh, you know, just, um, you know, not, uh, not try to have a job or something. But if you're generous, God is pleased. <clears throat> I won't turn to it, but in Luke chapter 3, verse 11. Luke 3, verse 11, Jesus tells uh, us that, you know, if we have two tunics, share with him who has none. If you have extra food, share with him who has little. Let's turn to one scripture, though, because I do want to remind us that we need to especially take care of and be attentive to the household of faith. Galatians 6, verse 10. Uh, Back in Ambassador College, uh, one of the things I was uh, able to do that was just a real joy was run the outreach program uh, for a couple years. And uh, we made this scripture, uh, one one of two scriptures that were our motto, uh, Galatians 6, verse 10. <clears throat> and it helps us to focus. Sometimes people get off of their focus. <clears throat> and we can't, sadly, you know, sadly, we can't solve all the problems in India and all the problems in Latin America. We can try to help, but what should our emphasis be? It should be the household of faith, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, not, I didn't say to 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 shun the rest of the world. But let's see what God inspired to be recorded here, verse ten. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do let us do good to all, but especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Point number seven, we saw in Acts chapter twenty, verse thirty six and thirty seven, that at the end of Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders. Uh, They loved each other, they they fell upon each other, they hugged, they kissed each other, they cried. Uh, Brethren, Paul's actions here speak as loudly as any of his words could. He prayed with the elders, they wept with each other, they loved each other. Brotherly love. Do we love each other like family? I think we do for the most part. Do we love each other like family? Jesus Christ set that example. The apostles learned from Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Let's turn to John chapter 13. What is that famous statement? John 13. What did he say regarding this? John 13, verse 34. John 13, verse 34. Do we practice this? Is this the way we uh, think, you know, during the course of the week, the course of the day, that we have True, outgoing, agape love for our brothers and sisters in the church. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this you all will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love for one another. The Greek word here is agape or agapio. And it it's just a rich word. It, it has the connotation of fondness. Uh, it has a social connotation. It has a moral connotation. It means a welcoming, inviting, friendly, familial love. So that is the seventh key or the seventh lesson that I wanted to take away from Paul's instruction to the Ephesian elders. Why was this instruction so important? at Miletus over two about 2,000 years ago. Well, the Ephesian church was going to face extreme tests. About four decades later, about four decades after Paul's ministry, Jesus Christ talks to the Ephesian church. Through John. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we know uh, these words. I won't read all of them. To the first era. The first church. To the church of Ephesus. In that great commercial city. A bastion of the truth and of God's church. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And Jesus Christ goes on to talk about their works, their labor, their patience. They would come to have to, and I'll paraphrase now, but they would have to test those as Paul predicted or prophesied. They would have to test those who would come in among them and try to take them away from the truth. They would be tested. They would face worse than that in the decades to come. But, you know, something happened over the decades. Some of them, many of them, started to leave their first love, as it says in verse 4. Now, I remember the falling away in worldwide I remember when so many left the truth they left their first love they became tired of god's word they took cor- cut corners on bible study and prayer they stopped practicing love for the brethren and the going was easy And they fell away. You know what the trial was back then? Here was the big trial. New minister comes on the scene and says, let's all break the Sabbath and go eat shrimp. A lot of people say, sounds good. It wasn't having their heads cut off. It wasn't being drawn before dignitaries. The Ephesians faced much worse than what God's church faced in the 90s. And God's church at the end of the age will face much worse than what God's church faced in the 90s. Mr. O'Gwen wrote in God's church through the ages that the living Christ's message to Christians of the Ephesian era was that if the Ephesians did not repent and return to their first works of zealous proclamation of the gospel, he would remove their lampstand. The apostasy of the overwhelming majority of the Jerusalem church in AD 135 When the second Jewish revolt against Rome was totally crushed is generally taken to mark the ending of the Ephesian era. Mr. Ames wrote in 2009 in his article, Seven Eras, Seven Attitudes. The church has always taught that the messages to the seven churches are warnings for all time and that they must also reflect the, they may, oh sorry, and that they also reflect the predominant attitudes in each of the seven eras. And Mr. Ames then quotes Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong explained, quote, these seven messages do apply to seven successive church eras, but they also apply to the whole church through all eras. In other words, the Ephesus characteristics dominated in the first era, and the Laodicean will dominate in the last. But some of these characteristics are found in every era. The The messages apply to the whole church as, and so I have said and written for more than 50 years. But certain characteristics predominate in the various eras, and that's from The Incredible Human Potential, page 158, is quoted by Mr. Ames. <clears throat> the warnings to the church at Ephesus are warnings for us today. And we're on the verge, on the verge. I don't know if it's five years or ten years, but we're on the verge of trial. Do we heed those those warnings? What's the rest of uh, the story here regarding the third apostolic journey? Well, Paul addressed the Ephesian elders, and then he continued on desiring to go to Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier. And on his way to Jerusalem, uh, he encounters uh, a prophet. Let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 21, and we'll move on with the story and wrap up the sermon. Acts chapter 21. So Paul had his ministerial conference, so to speak, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21. And he encounters Agabus, Acts 21, verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. So this is after Paul's uh, you know, instructions to the Ephesian elders that we just went through. And verse 9, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he came to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, speaking of Paul, if he were to go to Jerusalem. Verse 12, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered and said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we heard this, they would not be persuaded. We ceased saying the Lord, we ceased saying the Lord, uh, the will of the Lord be done. So Paul continues on to Jerusalem. Agabus's uh, recorded prophecy came true. Agabus made two prophecies that are recorded. Little uh, trivial point, you can Look up the other one uh, in in, uh, your Bible, but he made two prophecies, and they both came true. So Paul went on to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, he was eventually turned over by the Jews to the Romans and taken to Caesarea, where he would be imprisoned for a couple years. In Caesarea, under arrest, he pleaded his case as a Roman citizen to go before Caesar. You're familiar with this. This is, you know, something we, we know. <clears throat> he pleaded his case to go before Caesar. And that's found in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, a reference to that. That's probably 59 AD. And so <clears throat> Festus, the uh, the governor, asks the Jewish king Agrippa, Agrippa II, to evaluate Paul's defense, and then Paul's sent on to Rome. He sent on to Rome to appeal to Caesar. This is the first appeal. The first of Paul's appeals to Caesar. And so he's going to go before Caesar. Now, we don't have a lot recorded about his first, and we definitely don't have a lot recorded about his second appeal, but we have some, some hints. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 4. We have some hints regarding what happened. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So this is... Um, <clears throat> Chronologically, we're still uh, discussing Paul's first appeal to Caesar. And what do we learn from 2 Timothy 4, verse 16? 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. And my first defense, this is before Caesar, no one stood with me. Everybody abandoned him, Paul says. All forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, and he did. What happened at Paul's first appeal, his first uh, trial before Caesar? The Lord stood with him for a reason, because Paul's ministry was not over. Verse 17, hints at that. Jesus delivered Paul so that Paul may continue to minister, to preach, to go out and preach to the Gentiles. It's referenced right there in verse 17. Now, Scripture and history are not very clear on exactly what happened. We know he was released probably around 61 or 62 A.D. This is about the same time, just to give you a historic context, that James was executed in Jerusalem. But Paul's ministry was not over. Paul would travel probably throughout Europe, Spain. Clement writes that Paul wanted to go to Spain. Uh, there's tradition that he may have gone to Britain. And by the way, travel between Rome and Britain was not impossible. It was very common. So he may have gone to Britain. I don't know everywhere where he went. <clears throat> he wrote First and Second Timothy. He wrote Titus. Between his first and second imprisonment. Or actually wrote first and second Timothy and Titus during his second imprisonment. Paul's ministry was not over. But eventually he would be <clears throat> arrested again, wouldn't he? We, we, we know, we know that Paul was eventually executed. Eventually he was arrested again and brought before Nero a second time. And this is likely 67 or 68. And he was brought before Nero a second time. Now, again, Scripture is fairly quiet about what happened here. Uh, We know that Nero died in 68 A.D. Tradition is that Paul was executed before Nero's death. So Paul was probably beheaded outside of Rome on the Ostian Way, 68, maybe 69. An imperial swordsman executed him. And so Paul's life was over. But his ministry continues, doesn't it? Through scripture. Let's turn in conclusion to Philippians chapter 1. You see throughout many of Paul's writings how Paul did not count his life more important than his service to God and to Christ. And he really flat out said that he desired uh, if it was God's will, just to die, and be able to see Christ in the first resurrection, we see that spotted throughout Paul's um, Paul's Paul's writings. <clears throat> Philippians chapter one is one of those instances where we get insight into Paul's uh, desire. Philippians one verse twenty one. And hopefully these words, as we examine ourselves, as we examine how convicted we are regarding core doctrine, core doctrine is what should drive our lives. We just talked about core doctrine, seven points. Were these obscure points? Were these points that you've not heard before? These were just fundamental points. Core doctrine should drive our lives. As we examine ourselves daily, before the Passover, absolutely, but daily, we should ask ourselves, how much do we allow our lives to be driven by these doctrines, by complete submission to Christ's teachings, by complete submission to Christ? And so if we do, then we can have the attitude of Paul where he said, for me, to live is Christ. To live is an expression of Christ. To live is to do Christ's work. To live is to let Christ live in me. To reflect Christ's nature. To reflect the the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? If I'm going to be taken before Nero and beheaded, so be it. Because to die is gain because I'm going to see Christ in the resurrection. That's what Paul's saying there. We don't seek death. But are we confident? Do we have the confidence that Paul had that we were going to be bondservants no matter what to Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens, we'll serve him. So let's examine ourselves. Let's remember Paul's instruction to the Ephesian elders. And let's live a life worthy of Christ living in us so that we can see Jesus Christ in the resurrection along with the apostle